Hello and welcome back to the history of video games. My name is Ben and I'm joined by the one and only Wes. How you doing, Wes? What's up? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. We've been making advances in our uh, research for 1980 and I just want to say I'm, I'm pretty excited, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the games look just better than, uh, than 79. <laughs> Which isn't always a guarantee when you're moving to the next year, so... <laughs> or at least there's more games, so we don't feel as bad as just shoving a bunch of the really bad ones into honorable mentions. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, I think we're going to be stacked with more just good games next year. But uh, who knows? <laughs> um, we'll find out. But yeah, you know, before we uh, get into the big new console, or I don't even know what you would call it, console hardware today. Yeah. <laughs> why don't we talk about what we've been playing? What have you been up to? All right. Yeah. So I've been. Looking for like a comfort game, you know, I finished Elden Ring, Okay. started playing Star Wars uh, Jedi Fallen Order, whatever that one's called. And that's great, but I just was kind of needed a break from the whole RPG kind of thing. So mm -hmm. I dug back into my video game history and found I still had the EXE for one of my favorite games of all time, Freelancer, published by Microsoft gotcha. and designed by Chris Roberts, the guy who did Wing Commander back in the day and is now kind of the head at Star Citizen, uh, making that whole project eventually happen someday. But Freelancer was kind of like right in the middle. I think it was his, you know, hope for like a 3D graphics environment of what he wanted Wing Commander to be. But I guess Microsoft kind of reined him in a bit because I think... I heard he wasn't too happy with like some of the uh, choices that he had to make because Microsoft was publishing it. But either way, it's just one of my favorite games of all time. Definitely part of it is that I have played it so much when I was a kid. So there's a lot of nostalgia. And like I said, it's a comfort game just because I know the game pretty much in and out and I can just jump into it and know what's happening. But to give you an idea of what the game is, at least on like the base level, it's just kind of a huge sandbox universe with a bunch of different star systems where you just start on a planet with a little bit of money and a spaceship and then it's like okay now do whatever you want at least for the multiplayer there's a single player campaign too which is definitely worth playing but my main draw was always just the multiplayer servers where you can join in and just do whatever you want traveling back and forth through these galaxies and there's still people playing online too amazingly uh, most of them on modded servers. I was trying to play in a vanilla server and I think every single one of them was empty. Uh, but that was fine because I basically had the server to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just a, it's a really nice game. In retrospect, I think it's maybe it seems a little dumb, but I really love the theming for the galaxy. It's sort of like a classic story of Earth was destroyed by war or environmental change or something and everyone had to evacuate into space and there were these five colony ships that went out into deep space and the whole universe that you play in in freelancer is basically divided like thematically and culturally by the cultures of these colony ships it's a little weird though the breakdown it's very like european american centric there's like what basically is just the American star systems, the UK star systems, the German star systems, and the Japanese star systems. And I think that's it. I might be missing one. But it's a little weird because those are like the only major cultures represented. But I love the theming of it because they each have their own unique ships and all the systems are in different part of the galaxy surrounded by different nebulas. So like they're color palettes are different each place that you go and it's just got so much to explore so yeah i mean i could go into the details of it but basically you should go check it out because it's not for sale anymore and on mod db i'm pretty sure all the mods that you download just include the base game exe anyway now so <laughs> <laughs> because it was published back in like 2003 so i don't think microsoft really cares or notices anything that's happening with it anymore <laughs> Okay. So what, is it mainly a trading game or is it mainly a fighting game? Uh, both, really. I mean, I guess fighting's probably the main focus, but there's mm -hmm. freighters for all of the different regions, too. So 
you can definitely do trading. There's a pretty robust trade system that doesn't, it isn't dynamic like you would expect any new kind of trading system in a game to be today. But it does have like, this station is an area that doesn't get a lot of water. So if you buy water from like three systems away and sell it over there, it sells for a ton of money. So that's definitely very viable. And lots of cool exploring stuff too. If you don't know the maps very well, there's cool ways that you can kind of find like these hidden pockets of mystery and stuff all over the place. Okay, cool. Yeah, but that is Freelancer. I'll probably talk about it again some other time because like I said, it's one of my favorite games. But I want to hear what you've been playing, Ben. I'm I'm very curious what you've been up to. <laughs> well, I've been playing another old game, Wes. Ooh, okay. <laughs> 2007 Scape. No, it's a it's a RuneScape. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, nice. I think I mentioned last time, but I started up my premium membership. Right, I bought some bonds, which are like little like two week tokens of premium membership. Right, and so. I feel like since I spent money on this time, I got to be using it. So I've just been trying to play it every day, whether I feel like it or not. <laughs> yeah. And uh, originally the goal was to like do money making methods because you can buy the tokens in game with in game gold. It's kind of like the wow token, if you know what that is. But pretty much you can get premium membership time by spending in game gold. It's a lot of gold. It's like six million gold or something. But um, you can do it. And so I thought, well, the best money-making methods are all when you're a premium member. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it's yeah, hard to make course. money in the free-to-play. So I was thinking, I-, I bought three tokens. So during these six weeks, I really want to make enough money to extend it, get another two weeks or so. And maybe by then I could keep extending or whatever. But uh, that hasn't happened like at all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, no. As soon as I started playing the premium stuff i just the plan went out the window and instead i've just been doing quality of life things so i've been like grinding agility which means that i'll be able to run further forever pretty much like my stamina just regenerates faster and that'll be the case even if i'm on a free world it's just like i'll just be able to run further forever so right yeah obviously nice and i've been doing a lot of questing which has been opening up different parts of the game, different little mechanics. I've been doing these like achievement diaries, which are essentially like little local based tasks for each little city or whatever. And then you get a reward if you do them. And the rewards are really good. Like there's four different levels of them from easy to elite. And I can only do the easy ones, but the easy ones are still like give you good rewards. Like so far I've been able to get two different teleports like free any day I can teleport to those cities from wherever I'm at in the world. So that's huge. I mean, it saves me so much time walking around. (laughs) And since my magic skill is so low, I don't have magical teleports that high level mages have. So it's it's just, Uh, I've just been working on pretty much quality of life stuff and story, you know, questing because it's really fun as well. And I can only do that on the premium server. So it's not the most exciting thing, I think, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I'm having fun and doing the stuff I've been wanting to do. And, you know, I'll just worry about the money later. I think my plan, my premium time goes for another like five days, I think. So I won't have another weekend with it, but I think I'm just going to keep grinding agility. And then when I go back to free to play, I'll stay on free to play for a week or two. and prepare myself even more for maybe doing that money push but right (laughs) that just hasn't happened this time (laughs) (laughs) nice well at least you're still getting enjoyment out of it and setting yourself up so that your free to play time will be more enjoyable too that's right yeah so that's kind of what i've ended up doing and just like doing fun stuff like i like i got a cat now (laughs) it's like you know i'm just happy that i have that yeah yeah Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, very cool. But um, that's all I've been doing. I mean, pretty much all my time. <laughs> Just doing the <laughs> same agility courses over and over again. But <laughs> Hey, whatever floats your boat, man. <laughs> Why don't we move into the APF Imagination Machine, the new yeah, piece yeah. of hardware and the last new piece of hardware for November. It's been a crazy month full of the Intellivision, the Microvision, the Atari... 400 and 800 
And now this is the final one. And I don't know if we saved the best for last, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> maybe not so much. So why don't I get us started by talking about the history of this and the idea behind it. And that might kind of give you guys an idea of why this might not be the most exciting one. So basically, the idea for the APF Imagination Machine came when APF heard that both Atari and Mattel were planning on eventually expanding their home video game consoles, the uh, Intellivision and the Atari 2600, respectively, to basically be personal computers, uh, whether that was with an add-on or using the existing hardware to make a sort of personal computer they could sell. So APF started to design the imagination machine to basically beat them to the market. And earlier, APF already had experience with making a personal computer of their own. They had made one called Picos One, which somehow uh, stood for Personal Computer One. I'm not really sure how <laughs> they got to that acronym. But if you haven't heard of it, that's not very surprising because apparently it was designed to use a very obscure, I think, like engineering specific language called JOS, which just didn't really help it and it didn't sell well. I mean, everyone was used to basic language computers, uh, so they couldn't really do much with it. But since Atari and Mattel were making, using their existing consoles to make this computer, APF decided to basically do the exact same thing and take their already released MP1000 console and redesign it with optional computer add-ons to make it a fully functional home computer. And afterwards from this, they also would still sell it as just a video game console for cheaper, but it was renamed to the M1000. Uh, they just dropped the P for some reason to make it sound like a new product. <laughs> These computer add-ons were branded as kind of being focused on creativity, and that's sort of where the name Imagination Machine came up with. That was kind of how they were marketing, emphasizing that it could be used for art, it could be used for music, it could be used for tons of creative endeavors. And another Notable thing about the Imagination Machine is that Ed Smith, who we talked about when we covered the MP1000, he is one of the first known black video game engineers, uh, the first being Jerry Lawson, who co-designed the Channel F for Fairchild. He co-created the MP1000 and was still working with APF at the time when they were coming out with the Imagination Machine. And because he was so integral to the process of the MP1000, they said, hey, go pitch the Imagination Machine product to Sears in Chicago. Uh, and apparently that meeting went really well and is kind of a highlight of his career. He's got a really fascinating story, which you can see on, a, I believe it's a Fast Company article. And soon after this, he actually transitioned to selling the Imagination Machine. Uh, the story, as he tells it, is one of his coworkers said, a hey, great job with that sale over the Sears. You just made me $10,000. And Ed Smith thought to himself, I only make $20,000 a year. Why am I not selling these and making more money? <laughs> <laughs> so he switched over to selling them. And at the time that it released, the Imagination Machine was half the price of an Apple II. It sold at $599, and the Apple II, I think, was about $1,200 at the time. And they also had a pricing model so that if you already owned the MP1000 from back when it released in 1978, you could buy all the computer add-on parts for cheaper to make it into your own personal computer, which was pretty cool. Oh, ben, do you want to talk about some of the specs for this and how it either has or hasn't changed from the old MP1000? Yeah, I mean, it really hasn't. It's kind of crazy. I don't really know how it works. I was trying to find pictures of like the insides, but somehow. The MP1000 hooks up to all these other computer components, you know, the typewriter. It's got a dual cassette case kind of thing, or cassette loader. And all those communicate with the original MP1000 machine and uses the hardware of the MP1000 to power this computer, which is kind of crazy to me. The MP1000 did have a Motorola 6800 in it, which is not a bad CPU by any means. It's probably not as common as like the Z80s that we see in a lot of computers nowadays, but it's not a bad CPU at all. So it could definitely power a home computer. Um, as far as what the machine can do for the rest of its specs, I'll just quickly go through them again. It had eight colors. It had 1K RAM on the console, but the 
carts could have more. I know with the computer component parts, you could buy some sort of, I don't know what they called it. It was like a uh, hub add-on building block thing, and you could put more RAM storage in there. <laughs> so you could go up to have more uh, RAM on this computer, which you would definitely need to do, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Uh, it had one sound channel that had five octaves of frequencies. As you mentioned, uh, it sold for $5.99, which is about, it's a little over $2,000 in today's money. But I guess because of this, um, you know, combo pack, you could buy just the MP1000, the gaming console stuff, for much less now. I think that it sold around $130 at the time. So it's interesting, like a lot of people in reviews and ads and stuff, they'd be like, are you not sure if you should buy a whole computer? Well, well, you know, just buy this game console and you can decide if you want to get a computer later because <laughs> you could just get all the other components a little bit cheaper. I think the main problem with this whole setup is that you have to have some sort of computer knowledge to put this stuff together. <laughs> um, yeah, it wasn't an all in one machine like a lot of the other ones that we're selling. I mean, it doesn't come with a TV. Like, you have to plug it into your, like, home TV for the console part, and you could do that for the computer, but, like, people are watching TV, so <laughs> it's probably a little bit more annoying than um, just buying a computer that has its own TV that it comes with, like, right. built inside of it. So it's a little strange, and um, as we'll get into... There's really no first-party support in terms of software. It comes with BASIC, and it's just like, okay, you guys can write the software. <laughs> that seems to be <laughs> APF's uh, design choice. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much all it is for the, um, for the specs. I do want to say real quick, one of the special things about it, it had the dual-sided cassette drive allowed you to play a cassette of audio while you had a program playing via cassette in there at the same time which a lot of programmers use to make audio recordings like instructions on how to run a game with the game cartridge in the other cassette drive so you oh, could cool. listen to it and and kind of you know run it at the same time which was really cool i don't think anybody else has done that before so there's definitely some cool aspects to this i mean it's the first time anyone's ever used a home console to power a computer <laughs> um but you know there's ups and downs with that obviously <laughs> for sure <laughs> yeah so it, it's a pretty interesting one one that we definitely want to take a look at and one of the main reasons we want to take a look at it is that because there's this big re-release there is some new software and with that there are a few games we wanted to mention uh so with that being said i think we should get straight over into our timeline and take a look at those games. everybody welcome back from that brief little break let's get right into our apf imagination machine games for today as a reminder we are in november of 1979 the first thing that we wanted to mention is that all of the games that came out on the mp1000 also came out on this m1000 imagination machine hybrid kind of system um, so all of those ones are going to be on here as well but then we do also have a couple new ones including artist and the easel uh, which is kind of that creativity lean to the marketing that i mentioned earlier uh, it had a voice tape recording that goes with it apparently uh, maybe to guide you through and also a drawing program that featured some completed drawings to view um, and i believe you could also draw on it as well so just uh, not exactly a game but 
a little bit of an art software there. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is the first one that I reviewed today. It's called Space Destroyers. And I have seen this game with 80 marked on, um, on it. I think it released on both cartridge and cassette. And I think the cassette is an, is an 80 release. Um, I'm not totally positive. I've seen a lot of dates for 79 as well. So I'm just going to put it here. By the way, before I get into this, I just wanted to quickly say the MP1000 hasn't had any games for it this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> it came out with like 13 or maybe 12 games last year. It was a pretty strong release lineup, um, honestly, but we haven't seen it since. They've just been working on this, I guess. <laughs> so again, uh, as I mentioned in the first uh, special topic section, the first party software releases are a little limited, I'd say, right now. Like the MP1000 definitely wasn't a bad console when it released, but we just haven't seen it. It's like, can you just make some more games? But yeah, so this, this one's Space Destroyers. And of course, when you release a new um, piece of hardware, you should probably put Space Invaders on it. And that's what they did here. So <laughs> another Space Invaders game for us to talk about, Wes. Oh boy. Are you Can't excited? This one's kind of a mishmash. I mean, there's some good things about it, and then there's some that looked a little dated. It kind of reminds me of an Apple II version or something, where the sprites are mostly white, but they do have some color in them. They all have animation, and some of the sprites are even multicolored. So, I don't know. It's kind of a mishmash. Um, it's kind of weird. The, the very bottom of the screen is all green it's kind of like in this green overlay looking thing but obviously there's no overlay it's just everything's greened out and um i guess that's whatever you're defending you you have the classic kind of brick shields preventing laser beams from hitting you that you can hide behind and then you have your spaceship i guess i don't really know it, it looks kind of like a vial from like a science classroom <laughs> that you're shooting <laughs> bullets out of um I have no idea what that is supposed to be. It does not look good. And it's all one color, you know, this kind of light green over dark green. Um, but then the space invaders themselves, you have three different kinds and two of them are multicolored sprites. They're all like kind of have this white base to them, but then some of them have this green and red eyeballs coming out of them, which look pretty good. And they all have at least two frames of animation, mostly just like, their legs moving up and down, or maybe their arms moving up and down. I think the animation's pretty decent for a console. And I'm ha very happy to say that when the Space Invaders get down to a very small number, they do start to move very fast on the screen. So we don't have big refresh problems or, you know, just the console moving too slowly. That doesn't seem to be a limitation. So, um, you know, there's a lot of good, good things with this game. It's just we've seen it before is all. So um, I think that's pretty much all I need to say about it. I mean, it's Space Invaders. You've got five <laughs> rows of invaders, um, three different kinds. They move down in the usual way. I mean, there's not too much to say. <laughs> so let me get into my ratings. For gameplay, I did give it a 2.25 out of 10. We've seen a lot worse Space Invaders games, I think. Uh, even... I mean, remember that arcade game, Space Invaders Part 2, Wes? I think this is Ooh, yeah. <laughs> this is still, like, maybe better than that. <laughs> it's uh, actually in true color and has some multicolored sprites, so I'll just leave that there. But, you know, it, it, you can play it at home, which is the big thing. It doesn't look near as good as the Bally Asterisk version, but it plays pretty much the same. So for gameplay, you know, it's not bad at all. So I give it a 2.25. For graphics, I gave that a 2.5. Um, I think the Space Invaders themselves actually look really nice. And they're very well animated, I should say. Um, the only part of the screen that I don't like is the bottom where your like ship is. Because it's like in this weird green overlay kind of looking thing. And the ship doesn't look like anything. So that's like my biggest gripe about it. Um, you do have explosion animations and your shots can... Um, you know, hit the enemy ship's shot and cancel each other out. So I think, you know, everything on the top part of the screen where the invaders are look really good. So it was kind of a mishmash. Um, by the way, there is a bonus ship, and that bonus ship is also multicolored. 
Um, it doesn't really do anything, it just kind of goes across the screen. But a sound does play, <laughs> like always. And it, you know, it acts very similar to Space Invaders. So this is pretty much, again, just for playing Space Invaders at home. So um, I'm glad that we can do that on another console because so far it's only the Astrocade that we can do that on. So this is the second there. So for graphics, again, I give that 2.5. Doesn't look near as good as the Astrocade. I want to make sure I, I specify that. I, f I forget <laughs> what score I gave the Astrocade, but this is definitely worse than that. For sound, I gave that a 2 because it's pretty much everything you would expect. Um, instead of a multi-toned background noise that's happening all the time, this one just kind of sounds like footsteps almost that are just happening in the background all the time. And then you have your normal kind of space laser beam sounds and people blowing up. Uh, nothing really crazy. You got the bonus ship sound. It's all pretty much what we've heard before. So I just kept it at a 2 there since it was just what I expected. And for relevance, I did try to think of how I might want to include the, uh, imagination machine as a whole in this i only gave it an 8 out of 10 because i don't think it sold that well there's not a whole lot of games for it and um it's probably just not as important as the original mp1000 i mean the mp1000 is like the same hardware as the rest of this <laughs> it just didn't have right. a keyboard <laughs> so i gave it an 8 you know still high because it's a new piece of hardware it is pushing forward and i'm not sure if the 2600 or the Intellivision does ever release into a computer but um this is the first to ever do that so uh, we gotta give it some some credit but not too much <laughs> and overall i give it a 2.25 it's a pretty solid version of space invaders on a home console um is mainly white and black with a green overlay at the bottom but the resolution is high, there's animation, there's a couple multicolored sprites for the eyeballs, and um, it plays pretty fast, so I can't really make fun of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, the, uh, the little barriers that you hide behind, they break in a way that's really nice. It's kind of like they lose pixels, like several pixels for every hit that the enemy goes and hits them on in that area. So I think, you know... It's got a lot of good good things about it. It just seems dated compared to what we know on the arcades is, uh, you know, Galaxian. <laughs> Doesn't right. look near anywhere close to that. And even for home console, the Astrocade looks better. So it's kind of nice because there's not a whole lot of these on home console, but it's not the best one either. So <laughs> it's, in, it's in the middle somewhere. Yeah. Well, it's an, it's an admirable effort. And I do want to say... I guess you could count the Atari 8-bit as the 2600 becoming a computer, sort of, right? Because they had some hardware shared, um, but... Right, they definitely didn't market. It's like, you can't plug no. the 2600 into that, though, you know? So, I don't know if they ever do anything like that, is what I was saying. Right, yes. Yeah, the Imagination Machine is really unique in that, where it's just literally slapping the two things together to make a computer. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally like, you know, the keyboard case, and then there's just like... A flat top on the back of the keyboard case where you plop the home console on and, and somehow they plug into each other. Right. But <laughs> it very much feels like two things that you're combining together and not one right. idea that was made together. You yeah. Know? <laughs> not like a whole new product for sure. That's interesting. I mean, I'm glad there's at least a solid game on it. <laughs> yeah. They definitely wanted to release the Imagination Machine with some sort of big seller and. Right. You know, they didn't have Space Invaders on the console before this, so uh, I think it's a, it's a pretty good one to have. Nice. Well, I guess let's move on to the rest of the uh, quote-unquote games that released on this. They're actually not games. Uh, the first one <laughs> is Budget Manager, uh, which is not a game, as I mentioned, and it's basically what you think. It's just helpful budget tracker, which, you know more on the side of marketing this as a useful home computer than a game console. I know, because like, it was challenging. I even read that 
Like some people were like, why would I want my computer to be powered but from a gaming console? They like just didn't get it. You know, right. like yeah. my computer has to like do my taxes and I don't trust this gaming console <laughs> to do that. Um, so their solution was to try to do stuff like the budget manager, which was some sort of first party thing that was like, oh, I can do this. Trust me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the, f- the final cartridge here is APF Basic, which allows you to code and write your own games or any kind of program in Basic. No other first-party games will ever be released for the Imagination Machine, which is wild to me. But because of APF Basic, we will see computer hobbyists make games and other programs for the Imagination Machine in the future. So it's kind of one of those deals where I feel like this had a lot of potential, but the lack of first-party support is killing it for me. And as good as some of the computer hobbyists are, they're just not going to be able to compete with atari making games for the 2600 you know what i mean yeah um so this is almost the end of the imagination machine already but it was such a unique and original idea and um you know maybe it could have taken off but it just didn't so yeah space destroyer is, is going to be probably the last huge game for it for us it's unfortunate with a name as great as the Imagination Machine uh, that there's not more, I guess, imagination. Don't say it, was. going on. <laughs> I didn't say it in the SpongeBob voice, at least. But, <laughs> uh, but with that, uh, let's move on to some arcade games for a little bit because oh, yeah. we've got some weird stuff and some interesting stuff and i love weird games uh so let's get into it with the first one that i reviewed today tail gunner by cinematronics and vector beam uh, at this point i don't know exactly when but i think it was either right after tail gunner released or right before uh cinematronics bought out vector beam uh, so that's why they're they were kind of our big competitors for vector graphics games there for a while yeah we'll do a full special topic on that when we have time but People need to stop coming out with new hardware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we'll get the full scoop on that, but for now, just know that uh, they are making these games together. Uh, this will also be Vector Beam's last game uh, for reasons we'll talk about in our special topic, but <laughs> just uh, know that this is their last game. And another really interesting thing about this is that this sound card for this um, cabinet was apparently more complex than any of the other sound cards used before in these uh vector beam systems uh, which definitely shows as i'll talk about in my ratings and then just a little bit about the cabinet itself had some bright neon designs on it of like the cockpit or the inside of uh, turrets controls uh including as one youtuber pointed out a vinyl like sticker of a calculator on the side because like they figured in all this sci-fi space stuff you need to also have a calculator so (laughs) (laughs) they're like there's gotta be a calculator in those cockpits yeah yeah, exactly yeah so there's just like next to the controls a sticker of a calculator which you don't you don't need it all in the game i love it (laughs) the controls for the game though are a button to shoot a button for your shields and a joystick which use uh, controls the crosshairs Getting into the basic gameplay for this, though, as Tail Gunner implies, you are in the tail gun of a ship. Uh, You are shooting down enemy ships that are chasing you. The enemy ships come in groups of usually three uh, from different parts of the screen, and they kind of snake around, do a little bit of like a Galaxian loop-de-loop, and then come straight towards you because this is a vector graphics game, so there is definitely a depth and perspective and it looks very 3d so they kind of start off in the distance looping around then they come towards you and you have to move your cursor to fire at them uh, very much in the what we would call bob bishop style (laughs) bob bishop star wars style game or basically you know turret gunning type of game you're just moving your cursor and shooting at them and the game keeps going until you let 10 ships get past you. Uh, you don't take any damage, but the ships fly by you if you don't blow them up. And after 10 ships pass, the game's over. And then you also have a shield that you can use, which 
blocks the whole screen. So no matter where the ships are, if they're trying to get past you and you hold the shield button, they can't get past and they kind of bonk off your shield and go flying backwards. But the catch is that you can only hold down the shield button for so many seconds total during the whole entire game. Uh, so I saw somebody, they must have had a manufacturer like hard mode switch because they only had 15 seconds of shield. Whereas when I played the emulated version, I had 99 seconds, which is much more my style. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there was definitely different difficulties for it. And it could get pretty tough with what was basically your uh, oh crap button or your trump card, you know, to only have 15 mm -hmm. seconds of active use is pretty slim. Um, but that's the basic gameplay. Your ships on screen, they don't change too much. They're just those ships coming down in threes from different angles over and over again. And their speed kind of increases the longer you go. Um, but you just got to shoot them down and that's the whole game. But let me get into the ratings now, because even though that sounds pretty simple, tail gunner is pretty awesome. Let me start with the graphics. I gave it a 2.75 out of 10 here. The game is very simple, but just looks awesome, which I feel like is kind of the case for all of these vector graphics games. Um, the card that they're using at the time for these games mean that it is in black and white. So not too much going on there. The background is pretty simple. You know, we're in space, so it's just all black with stars flying by. Although there's a nice touch where since you're in the tail of the ship, the stars are flying the opposite direction from what you'd normally expect. You know, they're not flying towards you to make it look like you're going really fast. They're flying away from you very quickly. Uh, so I'm glad that that's a small detail they got right to make it feel realistic. The reticule and the animation for the shield popping up on screen, or animation, I should say in quotes, it's really just a sprite that shows up on the screen for the shield. Um, those are pretty simple looking, but they look good enough. They fit the theme. The real thing that sells me on it, though, is the enemy ships. They, you know, are fairly simple and they're all black and white like everything else, but they look fantastic. Just the illusion of 3D from the vector graphics. Uh, they just have a really cool shape to them. They move very fluidly in all of these loop-de-loops that they're doing. And of course, because there's perspective, as they fly closer to you, they're smoothly getting uh, larger. It doesn't look like, you know, there's only five sprites for their different sizes. It's they're continuously growing in size as they get closer to your screen. And it just works super great for this type of game where you're basically like looking down uh, the barrel, shooting them as they're coming towards you. Uh, the laser shots are pretty good. They basically just look like arrows, uh, but because they're 3D, uh, it works pretty well. They still look good, and they kind of have that vanishing point perspective as they go off into the distance to hit the other ships. Uh, so that all looks great. Other than that, though, I mean, there's a ship explosion. That's the classic vector graphics style of just the thing shatters into pieces. <laughs> so that's there. And there's also this cool... I guess hyperspace animation. Uh, I couldn't really tell what it was, but it's whenever a ship gets past you, it sort of looks like you speed up for a bit and then the ships catch up with you again. Uh, and it's really simple. Basically, all the ships disappear off screen and it just makes all the stars go by really, really fast, but it perfectly captures that classic Millennium Falcon entering hyperspace feel. Uh, so I really like that as well. Moving into sounds though, as I mentioned, there's a more complex sound card on this arcade cabinet. I ended up giving it a 2.75 out of 10 for sounds here, which is extra impressive because I think there's only three sounds in this whole game and no music, but it still sounds really good. The laser firing sound is exactly what I would hope for in a space game. It's just that classic sci-fi blaster noise. The explosion is honestly pretty simple and nothing special there, but it works well enough. Uh, one of the things I love the most about this sound, though, is the really weird hyperspace sound during that animation I was talking about. It's this kind of like bassy, almost sounding like a short burst of like an air raid siren kind of thing. It just feels very sci-fi and very weird. So I love that because it's not like anything we've heard before. And it gives it this own unique spaceship sci-fi feel that I don't think any game has kind of given me as far as the audio before. So I really enjoyed that. Moving on to 
gameplay though, I gave it a 3 out of 10 here. Tailgunner is incredibly simple. It's always groups of three ships on screen, always flying towards you in different formations and movement, and you're just shooting them down. But somehow, they do that simple gameplay really well, and it's very satisfying. It's super rewarding to shoot down the enemy ships before they can even get to you when they're doing their loop-de-loops like way off in the distance. I also love the shield as a strategic option. I think that's a really nice thing to switch it up so it's not just... You have more options than just shooting them down. I really wish there was more variations or enemy types, uh, but I'm impressed that it still manages to be fun even with only the same type of ship flying at you over and over again. There's also a lot of really nice moments where if you time it right, you can hit two or even all three of the ships in one laser blast. So that kind of helped it feel really satisfying too. For relevance now, I gave it a 7 out of 10 here. It is the last game under the Vector Beam name, uh, and it's a good one for them to go out on. So I thought it deserved a little bit of relevance there in our timeline. I think Vector Graphics games are always relevant purely because of how unique they are. So I also had to give it some props there. And I do like the shield element too. I mean, it's not necessarily a big groundbreaking change to this like turret gunner kind of genre, but it's still pretty cool. And it switches things up and it's different than all the other Bob Bishop Star Wars type games that we've seen before. So overall, that left me with a 3 out of 10 for Tail Gunner. It's really simple so it feels weird to give it this high of a rating but it just kind of does what it does really well its graphics and gameplay are both very good and they both work really well because of that smooth unique vector graphics style and the addition of great sci-fi sound effects just kind of seals the deal for me and made it a great time and definitely worth checking out cool yeah yeah, I mean, I really like um, the ships have a very unique kind of flight patterns that I really like. They I mean, do. they're different every time a little bit, but they have a nice coming off of the screen and kind of in a more circular kind of way, getting back towards, you know, what would be right behind your ship or something. They just kind of fly yes, in yeah. really nicely. So I like that a lot too. The flight patterns are cool. They are, yeah. And I think the perspective and the sort of 3d-ness of it uh, really helps with that to make it feel like mm -hmm. oh they're coming right at me and it looks really cool right nice all right cool i guess uh with that we can move on to some more of our honorable mentions here yeah so let's move on to sheriff 2 by nintendo we decided not to review this because even though sheriff 1 was so good that I reviewed quite a while ago. This really isn't a sequel. It's it's pretty much the same thing, except the uh, bandits that were in the first game were changed out with animals for some reason. And the control scheme changed to not be eight directional, but more, but I think it went back to four directional because I guess eight directional mm. was hard for people. I'm like, what? Who's <laughs> <laughs> playing these games? But maybe, you know, people just weren't used to it at the time. But, yeah. um, Kind of feels like they're going a little bit backwards there. <laughs> and the next one is uh, the other one that I was going to review today. But I say was because once I checked it out, it wasn't um, as interesting as I thought it would be. It's called Space Launcher by Nintendo. came out um, in November of 79, where we're at. And it's kind of like Space Invaders mixed with Frogger. And the problem with that concept is that you just played a game that did that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> called uh, Lunar Rescue by Taito two, uh, two episodes ago in our Microvision episode. And that was a really great game, Lunar Rescue. And um, this one just kind of feels like what Lunar Rescue could have been, but is a little bit worse. <laughs> um, pretty much in Lunar Rescue, you started from the top of the screen, you had to dodge asteroids, collect somebody from the bottom, and then you know, go back up to the top, dodging aliens that time. And this is kind of opposite where you start at the bottom. You're dodging aliens on your way up to these, I guess, docking stations. And then, you know, you just go back. The one part that is a little bit different is that the screen's kind of divided into half asteroids and half aliens. And obviously the aliens can shoot at you and the asteroids just move back and forth across the screen. But um, 
Once you get to the alien part, which is right before the docking stations, your ship will automatically turn on some sort of defensive shield, I guess, um, by the, the tip of the rocket. So you can just run into the aliens to get extra points by killing them. The trade-off is you, you have to go like right underneath of them to make that happen. So if they decide to shoot, you know, you lose. But um, yeah. hmm. it seems kind of weird to me, though, because like there's no way to know if they're going to shoot or not. So it just feels like kind of <laughs> um, kind of empty deaths a lot. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> like I just was going to get points and they just got me. Um, the game is in a color banded kind of art style. So, you know, bands of color throughout. Um, but it's not using an overlay it's using i think which was the same case for lunar rescue yeah or the screen can go all like red if you get hit um which it does here but the pretty much the games are like identical <laughs> a couple small things but i thought i don't want to go into this for a long time like because we just did that yeah um and honestly i think lunar rescue it looks better and probably plays better there's that thematic kind of story driven nature to lunar rescue which i really enjoy it which you don't really have here it's more of a score kind of game so you know it's not bad the the one thing i do want to mention real quick the thing that i want most people to take away from this is that uh space launcher unlike the game west did has great music in it so we will definitely play some of that music for you guys right now and then uh move on Very cool. Yeah. I mean, as much as we liked Lunar Rescue, uh, we'll have to wait until like the 10th or 20th clone before we cover it again, I think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now let's move on to right away. The second game that I got to review today, uh, excuse me, as I probably butcher some Japanese names, but I believe it's Hayankyo Alien by Denki Oniko Corporation. Um, So I feel like I said that too fast. The game is called Hayankyo Alien. And uh, Hayankyo apparently refers to the ancient name for the capital city of Kyoto in Japan. Uh, Either that or or it literally just means ancient Kyoto. I'm not sure. But either way, it's supposed to be a city in the past. And the theming for this is, you know, ancient Kyoto city and then alien slapped on after it. What else could it possibly be? But you are a police officers or samurai or some kind of medieval law enforcement in the high end period who is digging holes to trap aliens during an alien invasion. Um, Wait, what? Exactly what you would think by that title. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, the game was originally developed earlier in 1979 for computer, but it was instead released as an arcade cabinet by Denki Oniko Corporation. Uh, who I don't think we've really heard of before, so I don't know what they've been up to. Maybe we'll throw in a special topic on them at some point if they are relevant enough. Uh, and it was also quoted as being the start of quote-unquote trap up or digging type games uh, where you're trapping enemies by digging in the holes and then kind of covering the holes back up. It was originally called Pitfall Trap Game, which kind of makes a lot more sense before it was changed to <laughs> what it is now. Uh, apparently this game was really popular in japan when it came out though and part of the popularity is attributed to the fact that there was this ongoing manga story series that was kind of about video games i guess called game center arashi and apparently it had a story specifically about this game Uh, so i think that kind of helped the sales in japan the flyer image too i mean it's got some great stuff going on it's like the head of a giant raptor with hands coming out of the darkness and a samurai like standing with his sword out about to fight it um so the theming already has got me sold on this game (laughs) moving into the gameplay though uh the game's described as one of the first maze chase games too and i mean we have seen things sort of like maze chase with head-on and those kind of dot eating games and also take the money and run uh, which was, I believe, that really weird Odyssey 2 game <laughs> that had some maze yeah. chasing going on in it as well. Um, but maze chase is also kind of seen as the precursor 
for Pac-Man because Pac-Man is basically a maze chase type game. Uh, and it's amazing when you get in and play this, how similar this game is to Pac-Man and how you can really see the roots of Pac-Man in this. Uh, but the basic gameplay is that you have four aliens on screen that travel through a maze, which in this theming is sort of a cityscape. And they don't exactly chase you like Pac-Man's ghosts. You know, they kind of wander around, but then when they see you, they'll kind of go straight towards you in the same line as them. But the way that you deal with them in this game is that you dig holes to trap them in. And you have to hit the button five times to complete the hole. It's not as simple as just pressing the button and then the hole's dug. Uh, if you leave it half dug, like you only dug three shovelfuls of it, the aliens won't get trapped in it and they'll just run straight through the hole and then eat you. Uh, so you have to do dig five times to make it a full hole before they can get trapped in it. And then once they're trapped in it, you have to rush over to where they got trapped and bury them by pressing the button five times again, or else they'll come back out of the hole and eat you, basically. <laughs> uh, you get more points the faster that you bury them after it falls into the hole, and after it's buried, it's out of the game until the end of the round. And another main thing about this is that you don't have to stand next to the hole after you dig it. You can put holes all over the maze, and that's kind of where the score component comes in. You want to keep them all close to you so that when something gets trapped, you can bury it really quickly. Uh, another reason for that is if another alien walks over one of its friends that's been trapped in a hole, it gets it out of there for free. So you want to make sure to set multiple traps so you can get all of them, but then also have them close to you so you can bury them quickly. After you trap all the aliens, the game keeps going through nine stages where the maze kind of switches up its patterns and more aliens get added and they move faster, I believe, too, uh, which again is very Pac-Man-like as far as like the different mazes switching up and things moving faster. Uh, and yeah, that's the basic gameplay of it, digging holes to trap these aliens. So let me get into my ratings now. I gave it a 2 out of 10 for graphics. It's got some amazing theming, but man, for an arcade game, these visuals are, aren't that great, to be honest. Uh, there's a dark blue background with light blue blocks to make up the maze, which those two blues kind of clashing with each other is already a bit of a weird thing for me. The aliens and the main character do look pretty great. You can even sort of tell the character is a samurai. He kind of looks like he has armor around his waist, which is pretty cool. And they also have simple two-frame animations for the aliens moving and the samurai moving as well. And then also a two-frame animation for the uh, samurai digging and uh, covering the holes back up. But despite the fact that the sprites are nice for all these characters and that the animations look okay, everything just feels super flat. Uh, everything is only single colored. The blue on light blue background is just a little weird. And even though there's some unique elements in this. It just felt bland overall. Um, so it still looks pretty good, but it just didn't have that like extra flair to it to make it a really great looking game. Moving on to sounds now. Unfortunately, I had to NA this. We found a video of an emulation of this game that had sounds that I haven't heard before in other games. So they definitely could have been from this but we couldn't find any original video of the cabinet to verify. And also, since that emulation had been posted, these sounds are actually no longer in the actual emulation of the game. So it seems like they were removed for some reason, whether that's because they were inaccurate or not, we don't really know. Uh, so I ended up giving it an NA, although if it did have those sounds that I heard in the emulation, probably would have only been like a 1.75 anyway. They were cool and unique, but there was only like two sounds going on. Let's talk about gameplay, though, because that's where this game gets pretty exciting. For Ayankyo Alien, I gave it a 3 out of 10 for gameplay because it's honestly a super solid and fun game, and it just feels like it has almost all of what Pac-Man will eventually have when it comes out. Uh, it was even apparently planned in the development of this game to have a power-up that freezes the enemies, which sounds very similar to Pac-Man. Uh, but apparently that didn't make it into the final game because it didn't work with the control scheme they were going for. Uh, so it's pretty fun. I mean, it's got that maze chase style of gameplay, although in this you can actually fight back by digging the holes. It also has a bit of what feels like a 
Dig Dug, or maybe this could possibly have inspired Dig Dug, not just because you're digging holes, but also because you have to press a button multiple times to get rid of the enemy, uh, which feels very much like when you're pumping up the enemies like balloons in Dig Dug. Uh, so it's got a lot of fun, simple gameplay with interesting twists, like the aliens being freed from the hole if an ally walks over them. And it kind of hasn't gotten old yet. I shouldn't say it will never get old because I'm sure we're going to have many, many clones of this type of game. But the style of gameplay of like sneaking around corners of the maze and then planning ahead with uh, the ability to place multiple holes and be strategic about it. It's just super fun in this. Um, so yeah, it's got that central Pac-Man gameplay with a bunch of stuff that I wasn't expecting and honestly wasn't expecting to see any of this in this random game from 79 that I hadn't heard of. Because it's so similar to Pac-Man and has even some Dig Dug in there, I gave it an 8.5 out of 10 for relevance. I really don't think it's that hard to connect the dots to say that this could have inspired those games, or at least Pac-Man, because it was very popular in Japan. A lot of people saw it, and it did really well in the US too, where it's going to release in uh, 1980, and we'll cover it a little bit later then. Um, but it's kind of crazy how much it just feels like straight up Pac-Man. I mean, all we're missing is the dot eating from head on. Uh, mm-hmm. And of course, it's got the weird digging instead of the power up dots to eat the enemies. But just the whole maze chase thing. It's <laughs> one of the reasons I love doing this podcast. You know, you this game you've never heard of. If you're just looking at a timeline, you see Pac-Man, you're like, holy cow, Pac-Man was inspirational, visionary, came out of nowhere. And of course, Pac-Man's an amazing game, but there's obviously lots of stuff that led up to it, like weird games called Hyunkyo Alien. So <laughs> I was just <laughs> super excited to see that and uh, love how interesting this game is. And I think it's super relevant to the timeline for that reason. And so overall, that left me with a 2.5 out of 10. It's very important and it's in a much beloved game, but it still doesn't stand up as well as some of its more contemporary maze chase counterparts. Uh, The visuals are a little lackluster. Unfortunately, we don't know if the audio was very good, Uh, but still it gets the maze chase gameplay down and has some interesting twists with the digging. uh, And I think it really kind of lays the groundwork for a lot of great games to come. So yeah, I'm just, it was a very cool one to look at. And again, I always love it when it's something I've never heard of, and it ends up being really good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Usually when I do research for the podcast and I see a game in completely like, you know, Japanese pretty much spelling, I'm like, that's probably really good. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know why. It's a good sign. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then of course, with a great popular game like this, there are going to be licensed versions and clones. And so we have Hyunkyo Alien by Data East, which was a licensed version, but actually did have some unique graphics to it, which is pretty cool. Very cool. All right. Well, with that, though, let's move into some computer games to end it off for today. Um, The next two are kind of a combo package. We've got Apple Invaders by Sukomo Original Soft and Micro Invaders by ESD and Programma. And I believe these are the same game, but the Micro Invaders is the U.S. release and Apple Invaders is the uh, Japanese release. And I think Apple Invaders is the original, although I could be wrong. But um, I do want to talk about these just for a little bit because they look really good. They're on the Apple II. Apple Invaders in particular, I think, looks amazing. It kind of reminds me of the one that I just did, Space Destroyers, on the APF Imagination Machine. Um, where the invaders are mostly white, they've got two frame animations, but you have a couple different colors sprinkled in there. Since since this is Apple II, it's purple and green, which is a color combo that we see all the time um, on the Apple II. And it just moves really well, moves really fast, but it's a pretty just faithful interpretation of Space Invaders. One thing I do really like about this version, though, is that there are some just purely decorative elements in the background and even like a little I don't know if I would say cinematic but opening section um, that has some artwork in it and I don't know it just kind of puts you into that space feel when you look to the side of the screen and you see an image of the earth and some stars and stuff in the background so 
I just think it's it's got really good artwork in it, and the gameplay is a really faithful interpretation of Space Invaders. So, just wanted to give that a bit of an extended mention. Nice, very cool. Let's keep going with the computer games now. We have Seaload Magazine for November. Uh, two things that we wanted to shout out in here. We have Psychologic by Dave Rose, which is some sort of puzzle game. Uh, but it kind of felt like taking the SATs or doing an IQ test. So not sure if it would have been too fun <laughs> unless you really like testing yourself. <laughs> yeah. You like those logic puzzles. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, some people do and no shame in it. <laughs> and then we also have Defend by Lloyd Frank, which is a Space Invaders clone. Uh, but again, as all the Sea Load Magazine games are on the TRS-80, a lot of these games can be pretty slow, and that's the case with Defend. Uh, it's kind of worse than a lot of other clones that we've played, uh, so we just wanted to mention it here. Uh, and also, there's not going to be anything of note in Sea Load for December, so this is the last we are going to see them until 1980. Very cool. All right. Moving on, we've got some games for the North Star Horizon computer. Man, wow! When have we seen that computer? <laughs> <laughs> um, I had to look it up. I can't. I couldn't even remember if we had done a special topic on it, and we have. In in seventy eight, we did a special topic on it. But it just has so few games that are released every year. This whole year, there's only been three games released for it, and we're going to cover them all together because it's just easier that way. So the three games were Hearts 1.5, Flight Simulator, and Valdez, which were all by the company Dynacomp, which I guess this is like their specialty is to make games for North Star Horizon computers. Um, Hearts uh, 1.5 and Valdez actually come out on other computers next year that we can actually play. So I kind of want to save a little bit for them um next year i mean hearts is based on a card game called hearts which is apparently like a physical card game that people play that i've never heard of but um could be cool so we'll, we'll you know definitely look into it next year and valdez is some sort of tech simulation game about driving an oil tanker around alaska again could be cool but we'll we'll cover it next year in more detail if we want to and the last one here is Flight Simulator. As far as I can tell, that doesn't come out on any other systems. Um, I don't have any images of it or any way to play it, but it's apparently a text-based flight simulating game, so probably not something we'd want to look at anyway. But um, it's just interesting to see what games came out on this pretty obscure computer system. Definitely. And speaking of obscure computer systems, <laughs> we are going to wrap things up today with the Viper Magazine by Oresco, uh, which was for the Cosmac VIP, uh, all the software that was in this magazine, or at least most of the software. And there was one game in here that we wanted to mention, which was Football by Frank Autry. It looks like it was just an RNG play picking kind of game where you sort of select what you want to do and it all plays out and there's no real gameplay. But it did mention that it used high res graphics. We couldn't really tell from the article, though, whether high-res graphics refers to high-res text or if there's actually any visuals there. And we couldn't play it either since it's on the Cosmac systems and we don't have a great way of playing any of those games. Uh, so unfortunately, we'll never know, but we just wanted to mention it there. <laughs> yep. Um, and that will do it for us today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We covered the APF Imagination Machine. I think it's the last big hardware release for the year but who knows what december may bring <laughs> um we also have tail gunner the last vector beam game also kind of published under the cinematronics name because they uh you know bought that up right when tail gunner was coming out um we also have space launcher from nintendo which i briefly went over and hyanko alien the crazy almost pac-man game it's kind of like pac-man meets uh dig dug <laughs> it's kind of interesting yeah. Uh, in 1979 so pretty cool one be on the lookout I mean next episode we're doing asteroids it's, it's, it's happening probably the second biggest game of the year some people would say the biggest game of the year coming up next episode is our final episode of November so be sure to tune in and um, yeah I'm just super excited for it Definitely. Yeah. So make sure to check out our website, check out everything that we've covered before, see if there's anything that might have been hinting that Asteroids is coming out. 
Also make sure to follow us on Twitter where we post announcements about all of our episodes that are coming out. And if you have any questions, feel free to send us an email. And with that, we'll catch you next time. See y'all next time.